right. First Peter, 30 years have passed since Jesus' death and resurrection. And in that time, as you well know, thousands have come to faith in Christ. Many churches have been established throughout the known world. Um, and, and in these 30 years, Christianity's grown. Christianity has grown. The, the apostles have been traveling, particularly uh, Paul, of course, and um, the impact this, of Christianity has been felt, but it's also experienced in these 30 years since Christ's death and resurrection, it's experienced a growing hostility because the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords is in direct opposition to a culture that, that is worshiping many different things other than God. And the culture is, in its hostility, committed to silencing these followers of Christ. Peter's letter to the churches in Asia Minor, which is what this is, uh, modern-day Turkey, this letter is written to strengthen these, these Christians as they face persecution, as they face this growing hostility, as they face rejection for what they believe as they face even death at times for being a follower of Christ. Caesar Nero, who is the Caesar at this time, is on a rampage against these, these believers because, because these believers believe Christ is Lord, not Caesar Nero. And so he is putting them to death. And this opposition that these believers are facing is discouraging for them. So discouraging that we saw in the opening verses, Peter has to focus, refocus their attention back to the basics, which is simply this, the gospel, the good news that your life has been transformed by Christ. And that means something. Not only are these believers discouraged, though, it appears as we read through this letter that their, their faith is, is wavering and their resolve is wavering. The resolve to live holy lives in the face of this opposition, holy lives, lives that, that are different than the culture, lives that, that really smack up against the culture, these, these believers are growing discouraged and they're, they're shrinking back some. Because they find it's much easier to give in to the culture rather than to stand firm in their faith. Many, it seems, are even tempted to give up or at the worst give in. But Peter won't have any of this. Peter will not have any of this. Christ made the ultimate, ultimate sacrifice for them and they have a call to respond rightly to his saving grace. And Peter reminds him of this, that a sacrifice has been made for them. Oh, I guess it's been about 20 years ago, this, a movie came out called Saving Private Ryan. And many of us have seen that movie. It is a movie that begins where an old man is walking through the cemetery, the graveyard at the shores in Normandy, where D-Day took place, Omaha Beach, Utah Beach. And as he's walking through, he, he comes to a specific headstone, a cross, and he, he kneels down and, and he begins to weep. And he, the movie then 
goes back in time and shows why he is weeping. This man's name is his private Ryan. He's, he's, is Ryan, and he is he is his four brothers. He had four other brothers who were killed um, in World War II, and so this letter is sent out. He's the last of the family, and this this movie is actually based on a town in Southern Virginia, Bedford, Virginia group known as the Bedford Boys on, on D-Day, that day that, that they stormed the beaches of Normandy, on D-Day, 19 of the town's 34 young men who went to uh, serve in World War II were killed on D-Day. And then just the next day, four others died and ultimately 34 died mostly decimating the town of its young men. And Bedford, Virginia, has a World War II memorial dedicated to these, to these men. And Saving Private Ryan is based on that memorial, based on that, that happening in, in the town of Bedford. And so this, this man is, he is Private Ryan, and he's an old man now, and he's, he's weeping and kneeling at the cross because this cross is the cross of one of the men who saved him. One of the men who, who gave his life to save Private Ryan. And, and he's, his wife is standing next to him and he, he's talking and he says, every day I think about talking to the headstone, to the man who is buried there. He says, every day I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I tried to live my life the best that I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes I've earned what you have done for me. And old James Ryan goes on to say, tell me I have led a good wife as he look, a life as he looks at his wife. Tell me that I've led a good life. You know, the sacrifice Jesus made for us far surpasses the sacrifices made to save private Ryan. And in response to Christ's sacrifice, Peter is telling us that we are called to live more than a good life. Anchoring our lives first in the gospel, Peter raises the bar much higher, in fact, impossibly higher, apart from the grace of God at work in us. As, as followers of Christ, we are called to prove the genuineness of our faith when tested, whether by persecution or, or temptation. Read with me Peter's words now after he has laid out the gospel sacrifice that Christ has done, this ultimate sacrifice for your life. Peter writes this in verse 13. He says, therefore, therefore what? Therefore, in light of all that Christ has done, in light of all that I've written in these first 12 verses of the gospel, therefore, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, 
knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but you were, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter has laid out before us the indicatives in, for, in, in the first 12 verses, the indicatives. What has Christ done for you? All that he's done, and now he sets before these believers the imperatives, the commands that we are to live in response to all that Christ has done and to be faithfully obeyed because it proves our faith is genuine and we are, we are disciples of Christ. And so in, in 2 Peter 1, Peter writes to the, to the churches as well. In 2 Peter 1, he says, he says the following. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Make your election and calling sure. And Peter is saying, these imperatives, these commands that I'm giving you, these are, are part of what makes your election and calling sure. And he calls them at the very beginning, you are elect exiles. And he repeats it again in this verse that you are exiles. We are exiles. These, these believers in Asia Minor are exiles. They've been exiled from the world. Exiled not as kicked out of the world, but exiled because they've come to faith in Christ. And they no longer belong to the culture and the world that they once held so dear. And like them, when we came to faith in Christ, we became elect exiles. We became alien, alien residents of the world we live in. And, and Peter is saying, make, make sure, make your election and calling sure by the way that you live. And Peter begins in, in verse 13, therefore, in view of God's saving and future grace, make all your conduct holy. Here's the main idea for this passage. Grace, grace in the future as well as the present drives holiness in the present. Grace drives holiness. Three, three imperatives that Peter gives, three commands that Peter gives in this, in this passage. And the first one is simply set your hope in verse 13, preparing your, for, your minds for action and being sober-minded. Here's, here's the imperative. Here's the command. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, this is future grace. Set your minds. Prepare your minds. Be sober-minded. Set your hope. Set your hope. What you hope for, what, what the gospel has promised you, what Christ has done for you, set that hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope on the grace to come because it will drive your holiness in the present. There's, there's, more, there's more grace to come when Jesus returns. And that, that, is, that, is, that is the title of my message. Simply, until he returns. Until he returns. Until he returns. This is how we are to live. Until he returns, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation, the return of Christ Jesus. Set your hope. When, when he returns, the grace we will see and experience is going to be beyond our comprehension. We, we understand grace now. We've experienced grace now. We experience grace because we are saved and we no longer think, we no longer act the way we're, we used to act as unbelievers. We're no longer under the power of sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. That grace has made evident in our lives. We've we've begun to think differently. We've begun to live differently. We experience grace through one another. We experience grace through the reading of his word as we get understanding and illumination by God's spirit. We experience grace. But there is a grace to come that, that Peter talks about. He talked about it earlier in the, in the opening verses and he's talking about it again. There's a grace to come for you. Are, are you. are you hoping for that grace? There's a grace to come that, that just makes all that we understand of grace explode. It is a grace Beyond our comprehension. In 1 John 3, 2, John writes this. Speaking of this grace, he said, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That is a grace that is finally fully transforming us. Edmund Clowney speaks of this verse, he says, the imperatives of Christian living always begin with therefore. Peter does not begin to exhort Christian pilgrims until he has celebrated the wonder of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. The indicative of what God has done for us and in us precedes the imperative of what we are called to do for him. Without the indicative of what God does, the imperative is addressed to a helpless sinner, the victim of his illusions. It becomes a commandment that crushes or drives to vain and presumptuous efforts. Our hope is God's gift, an inheritance created for us by Christ's resurrection. Because we have been given hope, we are called to live in it. So Peter writes, therefore, in light of all this hope, set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you. And set it fully on that grace. The, the fullness of the salvation to come full, fully on that. That there is no other place to put your hope. There's no, there's no hope anywhere else in life but in Jesus Christ. And that will, that will come to fulfillment when he returns. This is an amazing statement. Full grace on display for you, promised to you, a hope that is anchored and is unwavering because it is a hope that rests on grace. God's 
grace, saving grace in Christ. It's not so much an attitude that you cultivate as it is a reality to be recognized. Hope fully set on the grace to come drives your ability to be holy in the present. So therefore, he says, set your hope on this. Or in the, in the NASB, it says, fix. Fix your hope on this. Or as the writer of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on the author and finisher of your faith. Throughout almost 40 years of marriage, I have lost many things. Keys, many keys, watches, money, my glasses. One afternoon, I spent 15 minutes running around the house looking for my glasses when Marilyn grabs me and says, they're on your face. (laughs) There are times where I am looking for something and Marilyn says, it's another place and I'm looking and I cannot see it. And she finally just grabs my face and turns it and says, there, do you see it now? Have you done that with your children? Look at me in the eyes. That is what Peter is doing here. He is grabbing these believers by the face. And he's saying, look. Look, set, fix your eyes on the hope. And how do you do that? You do it by preparing your mind for action. In the the NASB, it says, girding the loins of your mind. It's it's a reference to uh, ancient Near Eastern um, dress that men would wear these, these long robes. And when getting ready to go to work or go into battle, they would pull up that robe and tuck it into their, their waistband so that they could run, so they could be ready for action. It's like we say, roll up your sleeves. And that's, and that's what, what Peter is referring to. Get ready for action. Because it takes action, it takes work, it takes effort to prepare your mind for the work you are called to in setting your hope fully on the grace of God. Don't be encumbered, become unencumbered by the things around you. And then he goes on to say, but, and be sober-minded. And, and he's not, particularly he's not talking about alcohol here that you be Sober, he's talking about sober mindedness, not being intoxicated by the world. When when people are intoxicated with alcohol, it's a depressant. It it depresses their inhibitions, it depresses their self-control. And they give in to feelings and desires that they normally would not have given in to. And, and Peter is saying, here, be sober-minded. Do not be intoxicated by the things of the world. Don't be intoxicated by what looks better than following after Christ. And so he says, don't be, but be ready for battle. In 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9, he says this. Peter says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
be sober-minded. D. Edmund Hebert in his, in his wonderful commentary says this, sober-minded denotes a condition free from every form of mental and spiritual loss of self-control. It's an attitude of self-discipline. It inculcates a calm, steady mind that evaluates things correctly so that it is not thrown off balance by new and fascinating ideas. A sober mind is one that is, that is wise and self-disciplined. And sober-mindedness is not about a dull and lifeless experience. Peter tells us in, in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, listen, here's what the Christian life is like. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Listen, the Christian life is to be one of joy, joy that is inexpressible. And sober-mindedness does not steal from that joy. In fact, it adds to that joy. A mind prepared and sober is able to set its hope fully on the coming of Christ appearing. And the grace of that day, the grace of that day, yes, it is in the future, but it is also a grace that is real to us now. And Peter's point is that the certainty of this hope should have a powerful effect on how we think. Because how we think has a powerful effect on how we live. Paul tells us in Romans 12, verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Brothers and sisters, we do that because what happens in our mind transforms what happens in our lives. And so Peter's first imperative is, listen, set your mind. This prepared and sober mind. Set your mind. Set your hope fully on the grace to come. Because it drives the holiness in the present. The second imperative until he returns is in verses 14 through 16. Peter writes, as obedient children. And that literally in the Greek it says, as children of obedience. In other words, you're a child of God. As ch obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former life, the ignorance that you lived in. If, if we've been born again, if we are believers, we, we cannot be shaped or enticed or intoxicated by the evil desires we once had and we once followed because our, our nature's changed. And because we have a new nature, because we have been changed, we must be divorced from the ignorant way of life that we followed. This is not our life anymore, Peter says. This, this life of, of passions and indulgences and ignorance, that's not how we conduct our lives anymore. We, we're no longer ignorant 
So don't live that way. We know what is right. We know what is holy. We know what is good. We know what is pure. We know what is true. We know what is lovely. We know what is acceptable. We know what is God-glorifying. We, and we, we live that way now because we owe everything to the gospel. Listen, we were dead in our sins and transgressions. Children of the devil, not children of obedience. Under God's righteous judgment, not one of us was good, not one. All of us, like sheep, had gone astray. We were all children of wrath. But, as Peter writes in the opening verses, according to God's great mercy, we've been born again to a living hope. And Peter says in verse 15, our response to this salvation is this. But as he who called you, that calling is from, we talk about Ephesians 1, 4, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. You were called by God. God spoke and you heard because the Spirit opened up your eyes and opened up your ears and opened up your mind and opened up your heart to hear the gospel call. He called you and you answered. But as he who called you is holy, Peter writes, you also be holy in all your conduct. Yeah, the world, the world's a hard place to live. Yeah, there's opposition to your faith. Yes, there's hostility to you being a follower of Christ. Yeah, there are temptations in this world that seek to draw you back into the ignorant lifestyle that you once lived. But you've been changed. You've been called. And so you be holy. You be holy. And so Peter lays out before us this standard. Be holy as God is holy. And that, my friends, is an impossible standard to keep. Except it is not impossible because of the grace of God. And so he calls us because of grace, to be conformed to God's holy character because we are now children of obedience. Listen, holiness is not an unattainable concept. Holiness defined, holiness has this, I don't know, this, this like way, you know, theological, it's way up there, but holiness, holiness defined simply means this, becoming like Jesus living like Christ. It's showing that we have a life that is being lived for Christ, conducting ourselves not as ignorant believers, but as those who have been transformed, called 
elected, chosen, saved by God's grace. And so we put away everything that is inconsistent with who we are in Christ. Our identity, our identity is different now. We are children of obedience. God is our Father. How, do, how we identify ourselves determines how, how we live. Now listen, we live, we live in a world of identity politics. We live in a world of identity lifestyles. We live in a world of identity crisis. Who or what we identify with shapes how we live. Our, our identity must not be based on our skin color, our profession, our sexuality, our hobbies, our material possessions, our sports teams. That's, that's not our identity. These things are not who we really are. Our true identity is that of God's creation. And as his creation, he identifies us as either his children or as his enemies. If you are not identified as a child of God, you're identified as an enemy of God under the wrath of God. There's only two identities we can have. One is God's creation, but under that, either a child of God or an enemy of God. And as Christians, our identity is in Christ. We call ourselves Christians. That's who we identify with. That is what we've been called to. That's why we are elect exiles. We are different now. And the only identity that has any eternal hope is our identity in Christ. Every identity that we might try to put on ourselves is temporal and it has no eternal hope. And so that identity, that identity, be holy in all your conduct. Be holy as I am holy. That is the new identity we are to have. And in verse 16, Peter goes on to encourage them, listen, since it is written, you shall, and he's quoting Leviticus, he says, you shall be holy for I am holy. As God's children, we're not only called to be holy, something God greatly desires for us, but he tells us he will make us holy. You shall be holy. That is the promise and work of God. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You shall be holy. That's the benefit of being a child of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6 and 7, can get there. Let me read it to you. Paul writes, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate or holy from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will come to you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And that's where Peter dives into his third imperative. Set your hope fully on the grace of God. Be holy in all your conduct. And the third imperative, the third command is this. Fear God. Fear 
God, verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This exile, until, until you leave this world or until Christ returns, you are in exile and this is how you conduct yourself. If you call on God as father, if you pray, if you believe in God, if you, if you trust in God and you call on him as father, the father who judges impartially and what he's saying there is he judges everybody equally. He judges sinner and saint alike. He says, conduct yourselves with fear until you die or he returns. There is a close connection between a life of holiness and personal reverence, fear towards God that is prompted by this the, by the wonderful redemption we have been given. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Oh my. The, Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, he's not just talking about unbelievers. He says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There's this paradox here. Because we read in Scripture, perfect love casts out fear. Paul writes in. 2 Timothy, perfect love casts out fear. And then Peter tells us, fear God. Well, the, the, the fear that is cast out is the fear of final judgment and God's wrath. We, we don't live under that fear anymore because we are no longer enemies of God. We are children of obedience. But the fear Peter talks about here is a fear that guards and protects our lives as believers who are seeking to live with holy conduct, to live holy life, to live like Christ. Wayne Grudem writes, fear in this context means primarily fear of God's discipline. Although many today dismiss the fear of God as an Old Testament concept, which has no place in the New Covenant, they do so to the neglect of many New Testament passages and to the impoverishment of their spiritual lives. Fear of God's discipline is a good and proper attitude, the sign of a New Testament church growing in maturity and experiencing God's blessing. Moreover, fear of God is connected with growth and holiness elsewhere in the New Testament. Fear of God is not inconsistent with loving him or knowing that he loves us. If it were, we would have had to say that the Old Testament believers who feared God could have not loved him, which is clearly false, or that God did not love them, which is also clearly false. Listen, fear of God is, is appropriate because it holds us accountable for how we live, for every deed, for our conduct, for the words we speak. Our, our conduct determines our heavenly rewards. 1 Corinthians 3.13 It is fear safeguards our hope and our faith and our, and our heavenly rewards. Uh, D. Edmund Hebert in his commentary, Peter's primary reference to God's present dealings with his saints in the development of holiness and in their lives, but God's judgment of the believer will be, 
will find final application at the judgment seat of Christ. That judgment will not be to determine their salvation, but their future reward. The faithful or unfaithful work of saints will make a difference both here and hereafter. Listen, knowing that God is going to be and is judging our lives, our work, our holiness should inspire us to a godly fear, an appropriate fear that leads us to, to examine our lives, to make our election and calling sure. Second Peter 1.10, what I quoted earlier. Oh, there are so many passages after passages that talk about our conduct that is going to be examined at the judgment seat of Christ. Question being asked, have we lived lives worthy of the gospel? What's our speech like? Have we let Ephesians 4.29, only unwholesome words proceed from our mouth? Or Ephesians 5.1, husbands, have you loved your wives as Christ loved the church? Or Ephesians 5.21, wives, have you respected your husband? Or Ephesians 6, children, have you obeyed your parents? Have we been faithful to follow Colossians 3, which Paul writes and gives us a wonderful description of what our lives are to be like? Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you, will, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do we seek the things that are above? Have we set our mind on things that are above? Have we put on as God's chosen ones compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and bearing with one another, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgives you? That's holy conduct. That is living a holy life. That's, that's the standard that God has set because that's who God is. God is compassionate and he bears with us and he's patient with us and he's kind towards us and he forgives us. And Peter writes, the fear of God, the fear that he's talking about here, that fear that, that how we live and how we relate to one another, how we treat one another, how we Think about one another, not just how we act towards one another. That we actually mean what we say. That fear. That fear is healthy. Because it makes us consider that final day when we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Tom Schreiner said, there is a kind of fear that does not contradict confidence, our confidence in God. A confident driver also possesses a healthy fear of an accident that prevents him from doing anything foolish. A genuine fear of judgment hinders believers from giving in to their old passions. The background to such fear can be traced to Deuteronomy and the wisdom of Proverbs where the fear of the Lord informs all of life. What is remarkable is that God's tenderness and love as Father is mingled with His judgment and the fear that should mark Christians in this world. 
Edmund Clowney talks about this day, this final day of judgment, this day when we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He says this to encourage you, to encourage me. He says, listen, we are told that God's verdict on us has already been pronounced. In Christ, we are justified. We have passed from death to life. The judge in the last day is our Savior. God's final judgment will glorify his justice. He will pronounce for all the redeemed the satisfaction of Christ's atoning death and the merit of his perfect obedience. Yet, the faithfulness of the Lord's people will also be displayed, not as the basis of their acceptance, but to show the reality of their faith to the Savior. To those who have been unfaithful, the Lord himself will declare the folly of their hypocritical confession. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And brothers and sisters, that will be a frightening day. God's examination of his saints will also make evident the worthlessness of shoddy ministry. Heavenly reward will be proportionate to the faithfulness of the Lord's redeemed stewards. And so fear, fear sets us, sets us up for that final day. So set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed at the coming, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on that grace. Be holy in all your conduct and fear God. Now Peter finishes by telling us again the grace that has been given to us, given to us by God crucifying his own son and shedding the blood, the precious blood of his son in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest, the incarnation. He came to us. He lived as one of us in the last times, and he did it for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God now, who raised him, Christ, from the dead and gave him glory, gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter, Peter makes it clear. He reminds us that God... The God whom we fear as judge is also the God whom we trust as Savior. The God that we fear as judge is also the one who planned our redemption before time began. He was foreknown. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Christ coming in the flesh was foreknown before the foundation of the world, which meant your salvation was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The one you fear as judge is the one who planned your redemption before the foundation of the world. The one you fear as judge is the one who sent his son for your sake. The one you fear as judge is also the one you can depend on. He is also the one who raised Christ from the dead and glorified him, showing that that sacrifice was acceptable on the cross and that we too can look to have newness of life in Christ. The one who you might fear as judge, you should fear as judge, is the one whom you have placed all your trust in and are now a believer. The God Christians should fear is also the God they should trust forever. 
the God who has only done them good throughout all eternity. The stunning truth is for every believer is that God has done everything for your sake. He says that right here. That he, he did all of this for the sake of you who are now believers in God. It would be a tragedy to not trust Christ. It would be a tragedy for us as believers to throw away all that God has done for us by not living holy lives. By not conforming our lives to the character of Christ. And here's the main point of the passage. Listen, until he returns, God has done all this so that your hope remains and you stand firm until he comes back. He's done all this for you. So what's your conduct like? Peter tells us in in this chapter in verse 8 that our conduct reveals the genuineness of our faith and the genuineness of our hope in God. Our conduct, if it is holy living, living for Christ, it's a witness. It's a witness to those in our church. It's a witness to those outside of our church. And it shows the world that the gospel is true. Listen, the gospel of God's grace transforms lives. A transformation that does what it is meant to do, bring glory to God. And our part is to cooperate with God's Spirit so that we're no longer conformed to the sins of our past, but we are conformed to the character and image of God. That's the proof of genuine faith. Every morning, and I'm sure Marilyn is wearied, but every morning I listen to this one song by, by the Gettys because it, it has this prayer, an adaptation of St. Patrick's prayer. Uh, Devin read this a number of months ago, but it, it is an adap- adaptation and it, is just, it becomes my prayer each day. And it, it end, the song ends like this. Christ with me and Christ before me. Christ behind me and Christ in me. Christ beneath me and Christ above me. Christ on my left and Right, Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down and Christ when I arise. And here's what really sticks with me. Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. And Christ in every ear that hears me. Oh, brothers and sisters, let let that be our prayer. Father, that is our prayer that you are seen in everything we do. That in the heart of everyone who thinks of us, they see you. In the mouth of everyone who speaks of us, they think of you. In every eye that sees us, in every ear that hears us, Lord, you are preeminent. Oh, Lord, please, may that be our prayer and that, may that be our reality so that your name may be glorified. In Christ's name.